0: Go to Matthew and go back three books. Uh, It's a very short book. It's the second shortest book of the Old Testament. The shortest one is uh, Obadiah, only one chapter. Haggai has two chapters. And if you look at Haggai and Zechariah, and as Pastor Michael would say, Malachi, you know, that Italian prophet. Uh, I'll talk to him afterwards, but he just wants some Italian presence in the Bible. Uh, But the three of those are considered Old Testament Uh, prophets dealing with the post-captivity activity of the Jews. As you know, they were in Babylon for 70 years. And as they came out, God used Haggai and then Zechariah and then Malachi to lead these people into the promised land, to build the temple, to get situated there. And then, as we know, about 400 years of silence after that until John the Baptist comes in in the New Testament 40,000 people came in this first wave from Babylon, and um, Haggai was the first of these leaders. Uh, Scholars don't know much about him. Um, They figure that he was probably born in Babylon, and so he probably had a foreign birth certificate, Uh, like my grandson Jeremiah, who was born in Japan because my daughter and her husband were there. We tease him every now and then and say he was made in Japan. (laughs) And he's old enough to kind of understand it now, but uh, in any event, so he, uh, his name means festive, festive. And that was probably because he might have been born on a Jewish holiday, uh, or it could have been that his parents were just believing parents in hopes that their son was going to do something great for God, and therefore they named him festive. What a great name, huh? Now, Haggai was a very simple prophet. If you look at... Uh, Zechariah, he was very eloquent in his speech, a lot of picturesque language that he used. But Haggai was very simple. I kind of like simple people. And um, he just spoke directly what God told him to tell the people. It was almost like God was giving him little three-by-five flashcards and just say, okay, now say this to my people, say this to my people. And he just followed the directions, and uh, it was just a, a wonderful uh, chapter that we're going to get into. Chapter 1 really deals with a very important message for the Jews and for us tonight. And that is that God tells the Jews and therefore us as well to put first things first in our lives, to put the things of God first in our lives above everything else. No matter what the circumstances, no matter what struggles we go through, whatever preoccupies us, God wants us to put Him first always. And we know that Matthew 6.33 says, But seek ye first the kingdom and his righteousness. Very specific. And we know the first of the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, verse 3, God says, You shall have no other gods before me. And that's an imperative, is it not? You shall have no others. It wasn't encouraging people to have no other gods before him or saying you might consider it or it's a good thing to do. But he said, You shall have no other gods before me. And God is saying that he shall be our focus and our priority even today, no matter what the circumstances. And isn't that easy to do when we are zealous for God, when we have those moments where we're just in tune with God and we, we're in our prayer zone and we're, we're just doing things, we're extending ourselves because we are zealous for God. And I think of an example, I mean, if you're married and you think of when you first met your spouse, how zealous you were for them, remember the time where you just said, I wonder what they're doing, I just want to know what they're thinking, or uh, maybe you made sacrifices for them. I remember when Claudia and I were married, you know, I was never introduced to broccoli or zucchini or any of those things. My dad was kind of a meat and potatoes guy, and uh, I actually extended myself and tried them, and I liked them. But I also tried Brussels sprouts and asparagus, and I'm sorry, everybody, but I don't like them. Just, anybody else? Am I the only one? Okay, all right, good, good. But I made sacrifices. I I wanted to spend time with her. You know, I would even go with her to the mall to go buy shoes. I mean, you'd say, what, a guy going to the mall? But I didn't care because I was with her. And I can remember saying, you know, Han, I would just... Throw myself in front of a moving car for you. You know, I would die for you. All those things that that you see on daytime soaps, I suppose. But that was the zeal that I had for her and still have. And this is what God wants for us. He wants that zeal. We have to realize that God is zealous for us in that way. And he wants that from us. He wants a selfless, passionate, devoted relationship with him. And there are times where we don't necessarily pursue that with God. We kind of walk away. We don't have that same relationship, not because God changed, but because we change. And the circumstances change. And maybe we get caught up in a lifestyle of day-to-day life. And then we maybe block God out in, in some of the things that we used to have him involved in. And then we become inward instead of outward or, most importantly, upward. And tonight we're going to look at a very similar story in Judah after God allowed the Jews to return from being captive in Babylon for 70 years. They were back in the promised land and the Jews were zealous and they began building the foundation of the temple, but then they became preoccupied with everyday life. And so they didn't put the Lord's priorities first, And God sent the prophet Haggai to speak to his people, to get them to complete this temple. And with that, let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for the precious people that are here tonight, wanting to be filled with your word, wanting to just have their cup overflow with more knowledge and appreciation for you. And we ask that you would just... Uh, work in our hearts and our minds to know you better, to see the circumstances here and see ourselves in these stories, Lord. We just want to be more equipped, more in love with you, more zealous for you, Lord. So inspire us tonight through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Let's think about the original temple for a minute. Built under King Solomon. And he built... A tremendous temple, did he not? God gave him the blueprint. He gave them the materials. He gave them everything to just make this marvelous temple. People came from all around just to see this temple. They marveled at the materials, at all the intricate carvings. They had specialists and artists do all these things and find jewels and everything else to make this beautiful temple. And if there were cell phones there, people would come by and probably do selfies in front of this this temple. But it was a wonderful sight, and God's people committed and dedicated this temple to God. And then things changed. So we know that King Solomon walked away from the Lord. He married foreign wives, which God said do not do. He had a concubine of hundreds of wives, hundreds of women and time and time again as you look at the book of 2nd Chronicles the generation after generation after generation of kings it says did evil in the sight of the Lord Now there were a few good kings like king Josiah was one but most of them did evil in the sight of the Lord and the sight of the Lord and they continued to pull God's people away from him And it says in 2 Chronicles 36, verses 15 and 16, And the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, until there was no remedy. God was fed up. He put his foot down. He gave them so many opportunities to follow him, to get on track, but yet they walked away from him. And so God allowed King Nebuchadnezzar to come down and take them captive up to Babylon. He disciplined his people, and they were there for 70 years. Think of it like a a 70-year timeout, (laughs) a time for them to think about what they did. During that 70-year period of time, there were no prophets that spoke to God's people. It was quiet. And they worked hard. They were slaves in that region. What do you tell your kids when they ask, why are we here, Dad or Mom? You hate to read 2 Chronicles 36, 15, and 16, but that was the truth. Yes, son, we, we disobeyed God. We scoffed at his messengers and his prophets, and uh, that's a, a terrible story. But God, he does discipline those that he loves, And that's a good thing, although it hurts sometimes. And Proverbs 3, verse 11 through 12 says, My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. That was that loving discipline that he instituted on his people for 70 years. And perhaps you were in that boat. Maybe God was giving you signals along your life's journey and you just weren't paying attention and all of a sudden you said how did I end up where, where I am now and then you look back and you go gosh oh yeah I can see how God was trying to get my attention and it was one of those life lessons but you know because God disciplines those he reproves that he's doing it out of love or maybe you knew what you were doing was wrong but yet you continue to go down that path and God says I love you too much to keep you where you're at And this is what happened for the Jews that were taken to Babylon. So the scene picks up now in Judah after the return of the 40,000 people. God gave the Jews a second chance. He brought them back. And he gave instruction to King Cyrus at the time, who was the king in Babylon. And he inspired the king to let the Jews go back. I want you to turn to Ezra chapter 3 with me for a minute. Ezra chapter 3. Ezra chapter 3. I hear the pages turning. <clears throat> Ezra chapter 3, verses 10 through 13. says, Now when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, this is now they're back, they're building the foundation, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel. They were partying. They knew they did something significant for God. You know, I think of trumpets and cymbals, and sometimes we think about worship as being harps and quiet guitars and organs, but these guys were partying. You know, I, for some reason, I think of trumpets, I think of mariachi bands. You know, maybe there was a, there was a Jewish mariachi band that was playing here. Who knows? That, that would be, be interesting, but I kind of like to hear that. Verse 11 says, they sang, praising, and give thanks to the Lord, saying, for he is good, for his loving kindness is upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. They were zealous in their worship because they did something significant for God, the foundation. Think of a building think of this place, you would think of a foundation as the basic elements, maybe some plumbing, some concrete laid, certainly work to be done. The temple was far from being completed, but the basic essence, you could see the footprint of this temple kind of going up together. And they were excited about it. I was hoping um, Paul Hicks would be here because I'd want him to say, hey, give me a woohoo so I can hear what it would sound like. Because look at verse 12. Yet many of the priests and Levites and heads of their fathers' households, the men, excuse me, the old men who had seen the first temple, this is the one that Solomon built, what does it say? It says, they wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes while many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the shout of joy from the sound of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard far away. Can you imagine what that would sound like? People cheering trumpets and cymbals in that whole time of celebration. And then you hear this weeping to the same volume as the shouting. If you imagine a Paul a woo-hoo, but on the opposite side with the weeping, it must, be, must have been an unusual sound. And why were these people weeping? Well, it's because they remembered the splendor of this first temple. I mean, there was nothing that would ever compare to it. And certainly they were building this foundation, but it was not going to be to the same extent that it ever was in the past. And so they were weeping because they just they knew what it was like when they were celebrating when it was first built. And this foundation now is probably built on top of rubble and old materials that were left over from before. And so we know sometimes we can pay the price for sometimes our misbehavior. Sometimes we have um, strained relationships. Sometimes we can damage our own bodies and all those things because of how we've dealt with God. We've been disobedient. But God continues to give us second, and third chances. And there's encouragement here for us to know that even though we may not be in the same place as we once were, God is going to receive the glory from what he's going to use us for. But sometimes we don't see that. And they didn't see that at that time, the weeping part of it. But they will. They will see as it it goes. And so... Ezra chapter 4 talks about the pressure not to build. So as 40,000 Jews are entering the promised land, celebrating building this temple foundation, there were people that were living in the area, just kind of stragglers. They were enemies. They were Assyrian Jewish kind of half-breeds. We would call them Samaritans. And uh, do you think they would like to see an army of 40,000 people set up camp right where they were? And build this, and just imagine them hearing all this noise and the celebration and shouting and weeping. So they tried to kind of conspire a little bit and they said, Hey, let's, let's build with you. It's, we can be a team because they didn't want the Jewish people to kick them out of the area. So they said, Let's partner. And uh, wisely enough, the Jewish leader said, No, this is what God wants us to do. And those enemies didn't like that. <clears throat> they didn't like it at all. In fact, if you look at uh, Ezra, Four, verse 4, it says, Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. The Jews were frightened. They were frustrated. They got this foundation built. They celebrated. They were partying. Mariachi music. Um but then these men just kind of cramped their style and they just, they became frightened. And after a while, they got caught up in the routine of life. They put the building aside and they went on on their day-to-day basis, kind of raising their families and kind of stepping away from that. Do you imagine what that would look like? Do you think that that temple ground, do you think they they maybe put a fence around it and said under construction and they kind of walked by it after a while and, In the beginning, they were kind of depressed. Gosh, we were so close to getting that done. And then we got frustrated because of these other people. And, you know, maybe after a while, they just didn't even think about it. Maybe they just walked by it or maybe the fence came down or whatever it may be. And after a while, they just kind of forgot about it. No more zeal for God. No more appreciation for who he is. No more trust that he was going to lead them. To complete this temple, no fear that the Lord might discipline them again. So they were in an interesting spot. So they lost interest, and might um, makes me think of a home improvement project that maybe I'll start, <clears throat> and it's like eighty percent done, and then I don't finish it. Anybody in that spot? I, I started making a list at home, and I was like, oh boy, I feel bad. I better stop making a list. <laughs> I got walls I haven't painted. I've got a backyard I haven't finished the landscaping. I've got all kinds of stuff. And in the beginning, it was like, yeah, I got to get to that pretty soon, you know? And then after a while, I was like, I don't even look, you know? Are you with me? Get an amen on that one? <laughs> and that's what was happening here. That was happening. And so, you know, we can fall into that. And the Jews were starting from the spiritual high into spiritual apathy. And that's where they ended up. And into that scene, this is where God used Haggai to speak to his people. So let's go to, that's my introduction. Let's go to the book of Haggai as I'm watching the clock. Haggai chapter 1, let's start with verse 1. It says, In the second year of Darius the king... On the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Now, this is not the Joshua son of Nun, as we know, that came right after the book of uh, when Moses passed away and he gave the baton to Joshua. This is a different Joshua, but he is the high priest. So you've got the governor and you've got the high priest. Those are the two religious leaders at the time. And this was 520 B.C., and we know that because King Darius began his reign 521 B.C., so we know exactly when that happened. And um, you'll notice that God spoke to Zerubbabel and Joshua through Haggai. He did not speak through Haggai to his entire people. Now, there are many occasions in, in the Old Testament where God speaks to his prophet to all his people. If you look at Joshua twenty four, you look at other examples where they're all pulled together. In this case, God is speaking to two people through Haggai, and He wants to pull them together. And I'm trying to imagine how that conversation went. You know, it's like everybody else go away, try to get the foundation of the temple behind me, so when I talk, you know, they can kind of look over and see. And and He said, God's got something to tell you. I've got my three by five card. I'm going to read you what He says. I wonder what they were thinking I don't think they were going wow this is going to be great God's got a message for us I think they might have been looking over the shoulder of Haggai going yeah yeah this isn't going to be pretty and uh, and it wasn't so he said yeah come into my office guys we need to sit down and chat God wants to have me tell you something And so verse 2 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts. This prophet says, The time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Now you see the term thus says, the Lord of hosts. And the Lord of hosts is used 14 times in these two chapters. That's a lot of times. The Lord of hosts. You're just going to see it repeated over and over and over again. He's basically saying God is the Lord over all the armies Of the heaven and earth and all that was in it, the vastness of God, I am coming to you. This is the authority I have to bring to you. This is not a small God. This is the God, the Lord of hosts. And so you better pay attention. This is an important message God written specifically for you guys. Think about it. Those two guys were the ones that called the Jews off from building the temple. They were the ones that probably said, okay, we're done. We're just too frustrated. Let's just go home and be done with it. And then it says in verse 2, this people says. Now, isn't that interesting? Doesn't normally God say, my people? Like a father to his children, like a shepherd to his flock. My people, my sheep. But you can tell he's a little bit upset with With the Jews, because he says, This people. It's like saying, Hun, this dog of yours messed up on the carpet. It's never my dog when that happens, right? (laughs) This dog of yours messed up on the carpet. As opposed to, that's my boy. See, he's in the outfield, that's my boy, looks just like me. And look, he just got the ball, and you know, you just kind of go in that whole thing. That's my boy. This is your dog dear kind of a thing, and so God, you can tell, he was upset with his people, and there was a distance that he communicated because of how they were behaving. Then he says, the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to rebuild." and he's really paraphrasing what the Jews were saying, saying, this is what you're saying, the time's not come, the time's not right. You know, we want to do good stuff for God, but it's just not the right time to do it. Excuses, procrastination, and if you had asked the Jews why the temple had not been built, they probably would have said, "Hey, don't get me wrong, man. I'm all for doing these good things, but you know, I got a busy schedule. I'm raising the kids. I'm, I'm overextended, and I, I've got them doing all these things, and we're pinched for money, and." there's just not enough good jobs to go around. And, you know, someday, someday, things are going to change. And when they change, I'm going to be there. I'm going to be there. And what are we saying when we say stuff like that? We're basically saying no to God. Really, that's the bottom line. We're saying no. Even though we come up with excuse. It sounds good to us, right? Yeah, I'm going to be there. I'm going to write in my journal. Someday, I'm going to, I'm going to be there and take care of it but we're saying no to God and we need to be careful not to do that ourselves too I mean we can say hey it's a hectic time in our family I just, I just don't have time to serve I don't have enough money to give uh, you know you can just come with a laundry list of stuff here but someday we'll, we'll step up and be part of children's ministry or we'll step up and do this and that by the way just a quick thank you uh, we made an announcement on Sunday for people to help with children's ministry on Sundays, and all the positions are filled. So thank you for that. Yeah. So Tracy, do you want me to do an announcement? He goes, no, we, we got everybody, to, all the spots filled. So that was really cool. So, but Wednesday night, think about Wednesday night. <laughs> we still got some spots there. But anyway, um, we could say, I'm not really ready to take on anything big right now. Ever hear, ever hear anybody say that? Or my health is not what it used to be. I'm sore, I'm old. I'll, I'll just let the younger people do ministry. I'll just, I've paid my dues. I'll just let the younger people do that. Or maybe I've got too many personal issues. I've got to wait a couple years before I sort things out. And, and so we can uh, have so many things that clamor for our attention. And so our devotion to our jobs, our kids, our spouses, our hobbies, sometimes they just push God aside. And Satan would love to have us preoccupied, would he not? He would love to just put all kinds of things in our our calendar. And they all seem good. But if it takes us away from our relationship with the Lord, that's not a good thing. And so we can't fall into this trap. We have to look at our motivations. So let's look at the motivations of the Jews. Look Verse 3. It says, Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Now he's getting a little more specific with the Jews here. And the people had their own priorities, but they were inconsistent. It wasn't time to build the house for God, but, hey, it was sure time to fix up their own house. The term paneled houses relates to... Houses that kings would build. If you look at First Kings chapter seven, verses three and verse seven, these are palace buildings. You never had paneled houses with a normal home. It was brick and mortar and that kind of a thing. But paneled houses. I mean, these people were going crazy. They probably had the home improvement brochures. You know, they were probably watching the old Old Testament uh, home improvement shows, whatever it may be. You know, they're just going, "Hey, we can have this and we can do that," and they were just. Going off the deep end, and maybe they said we deserve it. Wouldn't, wouldn't the world tell us that? You deserve it. You need to have these kinds of things. And what happens is when we, we get to that point, we can be consumed with what I'll call first world problems. Have you had that term? Heard that term? First world problems? It's like this: first world problem. There's a scratch in my car and it's going to ruin my entire day. You're laughing because you know, right? Here's a third world problem. I have no bathroom. I have no shower. I have no electricity. Or how about this one? Three minutes to microwave my dinner, and I'm hungry now. I can't wait three minutes. Third world says I have no access to clean water. Puts things in perspective, does it not? But yet we can be so consumed by those kinds of things. But what is God's priority for us? He's very clear. It's to love him with everything we are, everything we have. He's provided us everything. Everything he has given to us. Deuteronomy 6.5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your might. And Matthew 6.33 says, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That is God's plan for us in terms of what he wants our priority to be. But it's obvious that this nation was confused, and we can be confused as well. And let's think about this too. Sometimes we don't want God to get in the way of a good thing in our mind, right? Sometimes things are going pretty good. And we go, uh, if I bring God into my world, then something's not going to work out right, right? Have you ever said, you know, if I fully submit to God, he's going to send me to that tribe in Africa, and it's going to be dirty, and it's going to be unsafe, and I'm going to have to live in a cardboard box. I can't turn myself over to the Lord 100%, because what he might do? And he might do that. He might do that. If I fully submit to God, God's going to put people in my life who are difficult to deal with. Not good. (laughs) You know? But this is what we can say. If I fully submit to God, I may have to get out of my relationship with him or her. We may have to change my TV-watching habits, my hobbies, the time I spend doing these things. So on and on and on it goes. So we like to just hold on tight sometimes. And this is the case. Non-essential things. We can make them essential things. And what we're saying in that case is, I don't want to put God first in my life, and we can be self-centered. Think of what happens sometimes when you put yourself first before someone that you love. It can be the same way. I mean, let alone God. I remember when Claudia and I were visiting our oldest daughter and her family up in the Bay Area. Uh, This was last year. And we stayed at hotel and we were having breakfast in the morning because we were going to go and visit them. And so we said, hey, how about if I order oatmeal and you order like a muffin and we'll share? We'll just kind of split it. and, And it sounded great, right? So We're talking, and I'm eating the oatmeal, and she's eating the muffin, and we're talking about our day and the previous day. And she goes to reach for the oatmeal now because it's her turn. Oops. (laughs) Oops, there was like half a spoonful there. You know, it's like, here, hon, I save save this just for you. And, uh, you know, she didn't get angry, but I could tell she was hurt. And sometimes we can do that to God. Do you think God gets hurt when we don't put that priority, when we don't put him first? Yes. But we can be selfish in that area. And so we can be self-absorbed. Now let's look at verse 5. And this is even more. I think God's raising his voice more and more here. He says, now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, there's that word again, that phrase, the Lord of hosts, consider your your ways, excuse me. And my Bible's got an exclamation point. Who's got one on their Bible? Consider your ways. And he says that in verse 7 as well. Consider is translated, give careful thought to your ways. It was time for the Jews to really give some introspection. Serious examinations to what they were doing. The term "your ways" that's Hebrew for derek relates to a road or a path. Basically, it's a course of life or a mode that you're going on, mode of action. So God is saying, think about what you're doing. Pause. Is that easy for us to do in today's day and age? No, <laughs> it's not. Ever get the end of your week and you go, where? Did, what? What happened in this week? And what, what God is saying to the Jews and to us, he's just saying, stop and think about your motivations. Think about what God is having you focus on. What, is your, what are you preoccupied with? Are you zealous for me? Every aspect of your life, what, where does it generate itself from? Is it from you or something that you want to do to please me? Can you be preoccupied? Can I be preoccupied with life? Oh, yeah. Very much so. <clears throat> now, I remember when I was in my early 50s, still working at the Boeing company, you know, I was thinking about retiring at 58 and coming here full time as the administrative pastor. It was a number of years away and I remember Claudia and I would visit our financial planner, you know, about three times a year. We'd make sure that all the lines in the graph kind of lined up to 58 and, and uh, the nest egg was building and building and, uh, you know, that was kind of our motivation. You know, it was a good motivation, but, um, you know, I, we got a sense that God was saying, I want you sooner, but we kind of ignored that. So 58 was the, the, the time, and then uh, about four years ago, we had kind of a personal family event that, that rocked our world. That's for another time. But it really let the wind out of our sails, and it really got us to think about what is motivating us? Why are we doing what we're doing? And from that, there was a uh, just a process that we went through to the point where we said, you know, God wants wants me now. I mean, I was 54 at the time that uh, you know we made the decision to just not retire at Boeing, but to quit and to say, you know, forget the four, you know, forget just having all the lines cross. You know, maybe they'll be a little closer, but. You know, God was calling now, and uh, we responded that way. And it made us realize what's really important. You know, when God rocks your world, I'm sure a number of you know, you get to thinking, you know, why, why am I on this path or whatever? And, and uh, that can be a good thing. You know, so that's what happened. So that, that uh, got our attention. But we can also be complacent spiritually, And um, we can be lukewarm, and we know what Jesus said in Revelation 3 about being lukewarm. And Jesus said in uh, chapter 3, verse 7, Because you say, I am rich, I have become wealthy, and I have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. In verse 19, he says, To those I love, I reprove, and I discipline. And we heard that earlier Therefore, what does he say? In light of that, he says, be zealous and repent. There's that word zealous again. He said, if you're just zealous for me, much like that relationship when I was talking about Claudia and I, we just couldn't get them out of our mind, each other out of our minds. He said, I want you to be zealous for me. Just be zealous for me and repent. And are we zealous for the Lord? That's a good question. The Apostle Paul was zealous, was he not? I think of him with a big S on his shirt and a big flowing cape and, you know, um, just because he was so zealous. But why was he zealous? Because he knew the weight of his sins. He knew that he was a sinner. Can you imagine looking back and realizing that you persecuted and killed Christians? I mean, he he knew that uh, he was a wretched soul. You know, blessed are the poor in spirit. He was a poor in spirit kind of guy. Not a macho, you know, S on my chest kind of guy, but he knew that he was broken. I mean, listen to his heart in Romans 7, 21 through 25. It says, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Okay, so here's Paul with a big S on his chest. What does he say? Wretched man that I am, is what he says. Would you expect that from a superhero? (laughs) This is Paul. Wretched man that I am. Who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God. Jesus Christ our Lord and this is the example of Paul so let's talk about zealous if you're truly zealous for God it's because you know the weight of your sins we are all wretched sinners I hate to tell you this (laughs) newsflash If we could see ourselves, if we could see ourselves for one minute through the eyes of a holy God, we would just, I think we'd be prostrate on our face, just shaking, knowing how far away we are from God. But what do we do? We minimize the weight of our sin. In our humanness, we go, okay, I lied, God forgave me, so I'm going to move on. And that is true. But to really understand our salvation, we need to understand where we are in terms of our sinful nature. Paul knew this. He said, wretched man that I am. I mean, this is a strong Christian leader that wrote a good portion of the New Testament. But we are wretched people. We are wretched people, and we have to realize that the wages of sin is death. That is death. Romans 6.23 and without Jesus Christ we deserve to be in hell eternal fire and if we're truly zealous for God it's because we come to terms of the fact that Jesus Christ removed our name from that cross for all of mankind and put his name on there even as wretched as we are he still did that he chose to do that I mean, he didn't have to. I mean, for me, I'd say, ugh, <laughs> not that person. <laughs> but he said, I will do that for that person. He chose to suffer in our behalf. And if we're truly zealous for God, it's because we accept the fact that he died on the cross in our behalf. We accept that as a loving act, a sacrificial act that he did. And sometimes I... I don't think about the weight of that. And sometimes I think about my sinfulness and I have to almost picture myself if I sin, I have this vision, and it may sound grotesque, but I picture Jesus on the floor next to me with somebody whipping his back and pulling out flesh from just the cat of nine and saying, he did that for me. I'm the one that deserved that. He did that for me. And When I think about that, it, it's sobering but I know that he did that. And how could I not be zealous for him to know that he did that for me and for you? He allowed our name to come off that cross and for his name to be put on there, figuratively speaking, and to pay that price to be bruised and battered and butchered and murdered for us so that we would have an eternity with our Heavenly Father in heaven. And if we can't come to terms with that, how can we be zealous for him? If we can't think of the weight of our sins and just the significance of Jesus Christ dying and paying that price for us and rising again on the third day, then we we can be apathetic because we just don't understand the weight of that. But Paul did, did he not? And so there's no way that we can repay that. There's no way that we can pay any of that back, but we can walk in a way pleasing to God. We can be zealous for God. We can dedicate ourselves to serve him because, you know, he made you and I for his purpose and not for our own purpose. And Paul says in Acts 20, 24, but I do not consider my life on any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course And the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Consider your ways, God says. Consider, think about your motivations for doing what you're doing. And so have we considered our ways lately? If you look at how we spend our money, how we spend our time, the gifting that God has given us, the unique personality that God has given us, is for a purpose. He's made us unique. There's no one else like us, the way we look and act and it's because he's got a purpose for us but we have to think are we considering our ways, how we're spending our time, our resources our goals, do our goals start with saying God here's a clean slate write your goals for me and then I'll go from there or do we say okay God I've got five things here that I want to do before I'm 30 and just, just give me your thumbs up and I'll be good and here's um, five more things before I hit 40. You know, just, just please, you know, don't send me to Africa. <laughs> That's the first thing. But uh, these are the things I want to do. So are we good? Are we good, God? And, and we can do that. But what would it be like if we started with a clean slate and just said, God, I'm just going to seek you. And wherever I've not pursued you in any aspect of my life, I, I want you just to just unveil that to me. Well, look what God says in verse 6. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. Now, that's not licensed to become drunk. It just talks about having an abundance of things, such as food and, and drink. He says, but you put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. He who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. You can see the picture behind me. There's that clear example. and So what is God saying? God is saying, you're doing everything that seems right, but you've got the wrong motivation behind it. The wrong motivation. So you're trying hard, and we can try hard, and we can, we can feel like we're frustrated, and, and we're weary at the end of the day. And God was doing this on purpose because he wanted to bring his people back to think about him. So he wasn't going to let them get away with doing all these things and having all these material items. They were trying hard, and they were probably bumping their head and thinking, why is this not working out? And God says, aha, okay, now I got your attention. And that was the case. And in those times, God would uh, rebuke his people or discipline them if they disobeyed. Leviticus 26, 18 through 20 says, if you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins... I will break the pride of your power. I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. And your strength shall be spent in vain for your land shall not yield its produce nor shall the trees of the land yield their fruit. Very specific there. Very specific. And this was the case. And then verse 7, he repeats himself again. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. And I look at this like sometimes I have to be told twice. (laughs) Maybe three times. You know, maybe it was the same flash card, and maybe you just kept saying, just, just keep repeating this, you will get it at some point. And that had an exclamation point at the end, too. Consider your ways. Some, sometimes we need to understand that. Now, at this point, if it were me, if I were God, I'd say, you know, I'm going to send you back to another timeout. I'm going to send you back to, to Babylon, because you just didn't get it. You were kind of there, and now you... You uh, messed up again and you're doing your own thing, and so I'm going to send you back. Could have been an easy thing for me. I mean, maybe that's just my humanness, right? But God is a God of second chances. And what does He say in verse 8? And this is interesting. God says, Go up to the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild the temple that I may be pleased with it and be glorified. He didn't say, Just wallow in self-pity for a while. I want you to feel bad about yourself for a bit. I want you to sulk. I want you to feel like you're worthless. He didn't do any of that, did he? I mean, he was very specific, very matter-of-fact. And he was very simple. Three action words. He says, go. Go up to the mountains. Go is a movement in obedience. And he said, bring. He's talking about bringing resources to carry out his purposes. Now, in this case, it's wood, but it could be many things. Bring more of me into your life. And then he said, rebuild. Rebuild the temple that I may be pleased. It's like a baby taking their first steps. You don't ridicule them because they fall, right? You encourage them. This is what God was doing. He says, you can do it. You know, don't say, I've messed up can't do this anymore. The Christian life is too hard. I'll just stay at home and crawl up in a ball or whatever it may be. You know, God is saying, all right, now that you know you've blown it, I've got your attention, let's get a move on. Let's get her done. I don't think I would have a southern accent, but maybe. Let's get her done. And so that's what God says is um, acquire the things you need to accomplish my purpose. And let's finish this together. Let's finish this to bring me glory. And then maybe tonight, you're kind of looking at things in your own schedule and your own motivations. Maybe you're thinking, I, I don't want to live for myself anymore. There's areas in my life that I haven't fully released it to God. I need to be able to release to God, but I'm so comfortable here, right? We're just so comfortable you know our feet are firmly planted and that, that kind of a thing like we're on a roller coaster ride and God says, just just let go and maybe we need to let go. Maybe there's something in your life, something there. Maybe you just haven't been able to spend time with the Lord the way that you've wanted to. Maybe you need to say, I want to have more godly purpose in my life. I want to see God's hand and the people that he brings in my path. I want to appreciate his second chances in my life. I can get a head start, a a fresh start every day. I can wake up with a fresh start as a second chance. There's a story of Thomas Edison. He was working on a crazy contraption called a light bulb. And it took a whole team of men 24 straight hours to put just one light bulb together. And the story goes that when Edison was finished with one light bulb, he gave it to a young boy helper who nervously carried it up the stairs. Step by step, he cautiously watched his hands, obviously frightened of dropping such a priceless piece of work, and you probably guess what happened. The poor fellow, he dropped the bulb at the top of the stairs, and it took an entire team of men 24 more hours to make another light bulb. And then finally, tired and ready for a break, Edison was ready to have his bulb carried up the stairs again. He gave it to the same young boy. He dropped the first one. And that's second chances. That's true forgiveness right there. Would I have done that? Probably not. (laughs) I would have carried it myself. But this boy got a second chance. And that's how God is, second chances and third chances and um, we just want to be obedient to God we want to imitate Jesus Christ in this because he's our perfect example how did he live his life in perfect submission to the lord he was submissive to the god's will to god's will as he says your will be done he was a servant as you remember he washed the disciples' feet and he was a prayer warrior He was a prayer warrior. He was in full submission to God. And that's our example that we should follow. And so when God speaks to us by his word, the only acceptable response is obedience. Not of comfort, it's obedience. We don't weigh the options. We don't go, well, he's just making a suggestion here. Should I do this or should I not do it? We don't examine the alternatives as we tend to do sometimes. Maybe there's a better approach. <laughs> Maybe this is easier. I'll put God off for now and I'll do this other thing. Uh, we don't negotiate the terms with God. You ever try to do that? God, if, if you just let me do this, I'll be at church. I'll be at Wednesday nights. I'll do whatever. But it just, I just, just help me out here, God. <laughs> and we negotiate. And God, God is not a negotiator, folks. Uh, It's his way. It's his way. He's God, and we are not. And we just simply have to let God do the work and let him work that in our lives. Now, the world's going to say what? Achieve. Be somebody. You deserve it. Live the good life. And that's a lie. That's a lie. That's not what life is about. It's submission to God. It's submission to his will. Selfless service. You know, any wealth that comes our way... You know, we want to use it to generously give. You know, think of that rich young ruler and how much he struggled with what he had. Any success or influence or talents should be used to multiply God's influence, the people that God puts in our path to minister to. Think of the parable of the talents and how that was used. Any strength that we have, any any part of our personality, any gifting that he has given us should be used for his glory. Now look at verse 9. Interesting here as we're coming near the end. God's even more specific. He says, You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why? Declares the Lord of hosts. And there is the Lord of hosts again. Because of my house, which lies desolate while each of you runs to his own house. I think dad's raising his voice here a little bit, don't you think? Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on all the labor of your hands. God's saying, I'm the one that caused all that. You know, it's, it's not because you weren't equipped to do it. I'm the one that put my foot down and made you struggle through all of this stuff. So he's trying to make it perfectly clear through the prophet Haggai. You know, it's probably a bigger three-by-five card when he's talking about this. But he says, my house is desolate. You were to finish that house to serve me, but you walked away from that. And so I'm just going to be specific that... You need to put my house first. You need to put my house first. And so, what happens in verse twelve? Then Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obey the voice of the Lord. Oh, that's good news! <laughs> Finally, after all this, obey the voice of the Lord, their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent them, and the people showed reverence for the Lord. They finally got it. That reverence, the word Yahweh, means to revere morally, to fully comprehend the totality of God, His holiness, His perfection, to see the, the fullness of who this God is, and they got it. They understood that. They realized that He put all these things in their path, as obstruction so that they would look up and understand it was from him. Now as the Jews are about to rebuild, I love verse 13. It says, "Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by the commission of the Lord. Now he's speaking to the people, not just to Zerubbabel and Joshua. He's speaking to the people. And what does he say? In light of You needing to build my house. I am with you, declares the Lord. What an encouragement that is. Yes, you've messed up. Yes, you haven't put me as your priority. You put yourself as a priority. You've been inwardly focused, people. I finally have your attention. I want you to build. I want you to go finish the job. Get her done. And I am with you. I will be with you. Isaiah 41:10. Do not fear for I am with you. Do not be anxiously, do not anxiously look about you for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Isn't that beautiful? That's our God. Jeremiah 1:8. Do not be afraid of them for I am with you, to deliver you declares the Lord. Matthew 28, 19 through 20, and you know this one well, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I am with you, I am with you, I am with you. He is with us, folks, and he says, I want to have that relationship back with you, and I'm going to... You know, you just turn it over to me and I'm going to do wonders in your life. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to use whatever's been broken, whatever that may be, or I'm going to take a derailed life or somebody that's got so much stuff in their schedule and I'm going to help them. Just come to me. Let's have some time in prayer. Let's have some time in my word. Let me have you get to know me more and more. And so verse 14 so the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. Four years later, after Haggai had that message for his people, They completed the job. The temple was completed four years later. And that was exciting. God said, let's just get it done. And I am with you. And let's work this together. And God wants you tonight to let go of the things that maybe you're personally motivated by for for yourself, perhaps, personal motives. He wants you to, to grab his hand as his heavenly father. He's with you. And he wants you to let him navigate you through life his way. Not our own way. That's hard for us. Because this world would say, do it your way. (laughs) But God says, do it my way and you will be blessed. You will be blessed. And he's going to encourage you along the way. And you can always come back here and look and see how God says, I am with you. I'm with you again and again. He wants to stir you up to be zealous for him. He wants zealous people. Remember, he's zealous for you and for me. And that never changes. And he wants you to serve him in obedience. He wants to do great things through you for his glory. And the question is, will you let him? Will you let him? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time that we can go through the book of Haggai and just see the story of these Jews and see ourselves in this, Lord. How there's nothing new under the sun; we're no different than they are back then. But Lord, we have Your Word and we have Your promise. We have Your assurance that You will not leave us. You will not forsake us. You will be here with us, Lord. We just want to be in tune with you, Lord, and if we have anything in our lives that we just need to release to you tonight, Lord, just impress that upon our hearts. We want to get back in that fellowship with you. We want to be zealous for you. We want to do great things for you. And if, God, there are things that we put in the way of that relationship, Lord, we just Give us the courage to say, we want to get rid of it. We want to jettison it, Lord, and, and not make it a priority. We want you to be a priority in every aspect of our life, Lord. So, Lord, give us courage. Give us wisdom. Have us be an obedient people to you, Lord. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.